So if you study languages, it, it sort of opens another door for you because you see the world uh, through a whole different lens, so to speak. You are listening to the Pretzel Podcast from Creative Mornings Munich. I am your host, Marco Lindgren. We at Creative Mornings Munich organize monthly breakfast talks covering inspiring topics in the creative community and life in general. This podcast brings creative inspiration and the stories of our speakers closer to you in your ears. Our guest today talked about the theme End in the Creative Mornings Munich event in July 2019. The event was hosted by 80 Dots. To see the talk, visit our show notes, thepretzelpodcast.com. He is a project manager at the digital agency in Munich. He has studied business and management and English and American studies. Instead of an academic career, he chose digital marketing. However, he hasn't lost his origins in languages. To him, language, in its broader sense, is one of the most fascinating aspects of human interactions. When he's not managing timelines and resources, he writes poetry. He is Alex Eiter. Uh, the topic that I picked was the end, uh, which always sounds very ominous. Uh, um, ominous, um, but I, I, I sort of don't have any negative feelings towards the end, and I did want to bring something not so dark and mysterious to the topic. So I chose back then. I chose language as a sort of, sort of umbrella term, um, and then I picked out emojis as a very specific specific feature of that. Um, And I'm sure everyone can relate to that uh, sort of this thing when we're growing up and each of their children had their own slang and sort of his youth slang was sort of regarded as a, as a very bad thing. And our parents keep telling us to capital in German, at least capitalize when we text message and so on and so forth. And so I always had this um, relation to new features of language sort of being regarded as bad. Um, for me, sort of this revelation came very late at university while I was studying uh, English um, and uh, languages in general. And sort of that's when I when it clicked in my head and I was like, okay, oh, you know, it's not always a bad thing uh, when things change. Um, and I'm sure not, ev not everyone in the audience uh, back then had studied languages. So I just wanted to give sort of this new outlook on how we perceive language. Um, Because most of our education is focused on remembering grammar rules, correct spelling, sort of formal language, um, if you can say that. Um, and people have never heard about other things of language that are sort of more abstract. Um, so I did want to bring that into my topic as well. Um, so I started out sort of, I think, um, talking about language evolution. You know, language is such an abstract term and it's just abstract things to human. Um, so for me, it was very important to sort of say, okay, as linguists, um, we bring in biology to sort of help us explain languages in a more relatable way. So we use the same terms as biology when we speak about language evolution, just to help us sort of um, make this very abstract thing more relatable to ourselves and to our lives. Um, and so I, that's sort of where I started off in my 
talk um, saying language is, not, uh, is abstract and we don't know how it works exactly other than biologists who have studied organisms and evolution for years that we know quite a quite in detail how organisms evolve um, but language is a bit more complicated and i did want to start my talk off uh, with talking about that and sort of say, say probably like mentioning something that nobody has ever thought about you know the way we think about language as such a sort of broad term as well but our whole education system we go through learning just sort of grammatical rules and spelling and how to write a good essay but we never think about what does language exactly mean um, you you also uh, mentioned or talked about uh, the idea that if if a language is alive uh, and uh, there we reference to this biological organisms you can say if they're dead or alive but how how, how can you say that about the language exactly so i mean i, I think everyone who's studied latin always heard oh latin is a dead language and it's true um but there's languages that are even extinct you know we we there's no way for for us to know how this language sounded like or there's no one alive that can teach us language with latin it's a bit of a special case because it's quite well documented and obviously the vatican still uses uh, latin as a sort of um official language so it's that in the sense that it doesn't have a very broad speaker base but it's alive in the sense that it's still spoken whereas other languages are com completely extinct um, and language extinction is something that's that's quite a problem now because everything's so globalized um, and especially dialects are dying uh, which is a sad thing and and they die uh, for some part as well because they're regarded as sort of less than correct language and i mean i grew up uh, in a very small village in austria um, and sort of speaking in dialect was always this bad thing. Uh, and so dialects die because, um, yeah, they're just regarded as this uh, bad thing and incorrect thing. And so many features of dialects are regarded as ingrammatical. Um, and so dialect de death is a real concern in the linguistic um, community and sort of there's a there's a large number of linguists that just work on documenting dialects in order to, if possible reanimate those death that dialects yeah I, I personally i think that dialects are are more like a, a richness or enrichment of of of, of a language and it's, it just shows how powerful or or vivid the language itself is when it has like very different versions of it sort of yeah i mean can you imagine how boring it would be if everyone spoke the same german and the same english i mean there would be that as i said there would be no richness it would just be flat uh, and of course like I mentioned this, I think, as well in my talk. I mean, grammar rules are great and all, and spelling is necessary, of course, uh, because it makes things more uh, readable. But there's a certain degree of flexibility that we have to have here. Um, and by no means, I said that we should like not learn grammar or, or spelling in, in schools. But it's not the only thing that defines language. Uh, so it was very important to me also to mention that grammar and those spelling rules, they're man-made. There's nothing inherently that makes grammar valid. Uh, so I gave the example, I think, of a split infinitive, which you can find in a lot of university manuals uh, to say, to put an adjective in between an infinitive. So to really like or really to like. Um, and there's nothing inherently that makes a split infinitive less than or wrong, except that people 
back in the 16th century, I believe, said, okay, we don't like that, so we're not going to do that anymore. And that sort of took over the next 400 years, and we still believe that the split infinitive is sort of a bad thing. When in spoken language, you, you hear it all the time. You hear news broadcasters split an infinitive or double negation, another one of my favorites. Uh, I didn't do anything is sort of correct, but I didn't do nothing is sort of regarded as this weird construction, whereas in a lot of African-American vernacular English, it's spoken and everyone understands it, but we still believe that it's somehow ingrammatical if we have a double negation. Yeah, though there has to be some sort of logic and, and rules, and even though the spoken moments and, and people don't really, it doesn't matter as long as you, your message is understood, right? Exactly, uh, and we don't need that many rules, or we don't need to be 100% accurate in our grammar uh, in order for people to understand us. And I do understand that in essay writing and in formal writing, uh, there is a sense of... Um, competence that you need uh, uh, for professionals and so on. But for me, it was very important um, just to point it out uh, that language is not all about correctness. Um, and that's not something we usually learn at school. That was very important for me as well um, to bring to bring across. Um. You, you, you talked, uh, actually, the whole, whole the, your talk was about these emojis and, uh, and you also talked about emoji grammar in a way that was uh, quite interesting. I haven't thought about it, but but there was certain truth to it that people use already sort of uh, automatically certain grammar when, when using emojis. Yeah, um, actually, I up until I gave the talk, I also haven't thought about emoji grammar. It came across in my research then, but it's quite interesting. But it's also something that's sort of logical. You know, if a large number of people use uh, features such as emojis, at one point, they will form sort of a consistency. Um, be that that we put emojis towards the end of the sentence or certain emojis we put together and there's a logic in how we put them together. Uh, so most of it is chronological in the sense that we put them and stuff like that. Um, so, I mean, you can observe it yourself if you text someone, uh, how, do, how do you use an emoji and why do you place it there? Most people would say it's subconscious, but when you actually start thinking about it and you sort of um, take a step back and look at your text message and, and 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 read it again and say, oh, I sort of, I can feel why I would put this there. It sort of makes sense to me. Uh, and that's sort of also all that grammar is, you know, it's sort of a feeling that you have, um, but there's no correctness or incorrectness to it. It's just sort of, um, yeah, I would say intuition almost. You also said, and I, I think that was uh, for me the uh, most uh, impressive <laughs> sentence, uh, you said that it, it seems to be an innate wish for humans to have a universal pictorial language. Yeah, so um, I sort of, a lot of what I said in my talk was very provocative. And I think, I mean, I, I like provocation because it's what makes people stick in there. That's what makes uh, it stick it, uh, in people's heads. But if you think about it, I mean, the first cave paintings I believe we have were like 17,000 years ago. So even back then, um, people made the switch from only um, transferring stories through oral communication by putting it on walls. Um, and then 5,000 years ago, we, if you, we look at Mesopotamia, we see these hieroglyphs, um, most famous in, in the Egypt realm, um, 
and it's interesting because even back then, um, sort of people wanted to express something that is not in words, um, that is not and mind that the alphabet hasn't been invented back then. So there was spoken language, but there was no way to put it down. Um, and sort of the first gut feeling that people had was to tell it through pictures. Um, and that's where the hieroglyphs came from. And it's very old, 5,000 years ago. So it's hard to make sort of a connection between how emojis work and how these uh, hieroglyphs back then work, but it's in this essence the same uh, idea. And I also mentioned that there, throughout history there were um, attempts in making a universal language that is understood across the globe um, through pictures. Because of course language is cultural in the sense that it's difficult as well for pictures to be, to be universal um, because Western culture has a very different um, take on things that, for example, Eastern culture. Um, but there were attempts made uh, throughout history to have a universal language through pictures. Um, and most recently, and I think that's also an example that stuck with a lot of people, uh, was a guy who lived in Austra uh, Australia uh, who was a, a concentration camp survivor. And he tried to build a language on pictures that didn't evolve languages or pictures of war because he believed if there was no means to talk about war, we would live in peace because if there's no language that we have to talk about war, war wouldn't exist. And I found that fascinating. Uh, and, and I mean, if, if you really think about it, it, it sort of, it, it's, um, it's true to a sense because of course, if you don't have language of violence, would violence still exist? That's sort of a philosophical question. Um, but I find it fascinating, and especially coming from such a dark place like the Second World War, and then sort of to say, okay, I'll make it my life's mission um, to invent a language that doesn't involve or that doesn't have any vocabulary surrounding war uh, in attempt to peace. Um, yeah, I found truly fascinating. Now, 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 I just come to think about it. It's it's actually like the other end of the spectrum if you think about George Orwell and the, and the novel 1984, where it's also the similar way language used as to control what you can and cannot think yeah uh it's a good point it also i mean how how um 1984 how re like read it again and it's it's shocking how many things george Orwell got right about the the future so to speak uh, but you're right of course there's always this question of um can language um affect the way we think and there's i mean that's a sort of a, a whole different topic and i had a talk on that as well um, to say, yes, languages do, like if, if we look at the differences, for example, in German native speakers and English native speakers or French, they do see the world differently simply by the way the languages are construed. Um, so in a, in a way, of course, uh, languages determines how we think. And I mean, if you study languages, there's always this famous thing, you know, that language is, is, is the, the door to the open world. Um, so if you study languages, it, it sort of opens another door for you because you see the world uh, through a whole different lens, so to speak. Um, and especially in research on, on bilingual children, you can see that they, especially early on, they do have, um, they do seem to be way more creative in the way that they use language simply by having two pools of languages to choose from, especially if they're not in the same uh, language family. Um, 
but that's a whole other topic. Yeah. Um, After your talk, did you get any feedback from the audience? Yeah, there, there's there are a couple of people that wrote me on LinkedIn, uh, but just congratulating me on on sort of shining light on something that's usually not talked about, and that's sort of the best feedback that I could get, and that's sort of the the goal that I was trying to achieve uh, was to talk about languages um, in a way that you wouldn't usually um, do unless, of course, you sort of investigate and you sort of have this own um, interest. But other than that, um, yeah, just just good feedback. <laughs> and that's always appreciated. And I mean, coming back to the emojis as well. Um, so I gave this example, of course, of pictorial language um, and um, how that was an attempt of of universal language. And then I flipped sort of the coin around and said, okay, can we then make emojis a language? And I gave the example of this uh, book that was translated, um, Moby Dick. Um, and if you look at it, of course, just a string of emoji isn't enough to tell us um, a story. Um, so sort of the, the end point that I made with my talk back then a year ago was to say emojis are a great way to sort of embellish your language, um, to make sarcasm more clear or to make something more funny. Um, but it's not enough to stand on its own. Um, but of course, it's a good way just to yeah give a little nod to your message. Because of course, in face-to-face -face communication, there's a lot of nonverbal cues that we take that we don't have when we communicate digitally. Um, but um, emojis are a great way to sort of bypass that to, to a certain degree. Um, of course, they, uh, they will never replace face-to-face -face messages um, or face-to-face nonverbal cues. But still, it's a, it's a great way to sort of enhance uh, a written text um, to make it more relatable, I would say. Um, not to a sense that there's no miscommunication, because of course, uh, emojis also are a base of miscommunication because simply people look at emojis differently. So the laughing face smiley is not um, regarded as a laughing face smiley by everyone. So there's a sense of miscommunication also in, in emojis. But in general, it's just a good way to sort of get your, your tone across uh, in a written text. Right. Uh yeah, I think thinking about it a year ago and, and, and during this year, especially this spring has happened a lot. And uh, we have this, uh, our, our talk is not face to face. We are over the uh, online and uh, that's been the new normal sort of uh, recently. How, how do you see uh, that situation now? It is a new normal. Yeah, it's, so we're social distancing, which is sort of a new term that that, that came about from uh, from Corona. And yeah, I, I, I looked up some dictionaries and stuff, and it's, it's amazing what three months lockdown can do to language. So there was a, a plethora of new vocabulary that sort of um, arose from coronavirus, not only sort of describing the disease itself, so SARS-2, COVID-19, so of course all, the, all these vocabularies that relate directly to the disease, but then a lot of... Um, terms that are, arose simply from a new way of living. So I, I think the most interesting I found was Zoom bombing, that is sort of related to photobombing when you jump on a Zoom call. Um, we have social distancing, which of course, it's its own, it's social and distancing are not new words, but sort of the meaning behind it, uh, very clear, flattening the curve that I'm sure will stay or stick around as a met metaphor. Um, we have like sort of 
um, cute terms for Corona, like Miss Rona, um, and all these terms that sort of um, arose during the time, not only give them, give, do they give us a sense of shared vocabulary and shared information and sort of a community sense, uh, but I think language in a way is always um, sort of, um, it helps us to unite and, and especially in, in, in difficult times where people found it difficult staying at home and we're sort of faced with um, not knowing what's next and this sort of very big dark unknown, uh, not knowing how long we're going to stay at home. I think language has always helps us to sort of take things with a light heart um, and sort of try to laugh about it if we create sort of these uh, new slang terms um, for describing something new as well that's happening in, in our world, you know, describing social events um, or now social distancing events, but sort of it's a, it's a way of, of uh, describing the unknown in a way that is sort of shared by everyone. And I think this sort of feeling of, 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 of sharedness is, is sort of what makes the situation more um, uh, comprehensible. Yeah, maybe it also brings some comfort and, and, and safety, feeling of safety when those things have a name. Exactly, naming the unknown, right? Um, sort of giving giving this weird thing something that I can call it um, and sort of everyone else calls it the same thing. So, it, so, so yeah, it's a level of comfort that we create um, a coping mechanism, so to say. Um, but I found it interesting as well. I mean, I think it's too early to say really what uh, what will be the outcome of sort of lockdown and uh, I mean, depending as well how the situation progresses now. Um, but I think definitely when it comes to digital communication, uh, it's been a leap forward. Um, working from home, um, WFH now, sort of the term um, that also arose during this time. I think as as working professionals as well, it was sort of the first time where we were put in a dis uh, situation where we don't have face-to-face -face meetings. Uh, everything is done via call or via chat. And um, I mean, I remember I struggled a bit in the beginning as well to sort of um, find a rhythm. Um, but in the end, I mean, it's as you said, it's a new normal, right? So communication via Slack became way more efficient. Um, calls became way more efficient. So sort of. Um, taking this new norm, normal and sort of adjusting to it as, as well from a communication standpoint was something that happened so fast and so naturally that by the end of sort of these seven weeks, you, you were not thinking about it anymore. And um, technology provides us a great uh, means to do that, um, to sort of still have a sense of um, working together on projects and, and working together from home rather than everyone individually um, being working and not seeing each other. Um, I mean, I understand that it's been hard for, for some people, but I think um, especially also uh, House Party, the, this new app and things. So we had, we had a lot of um, um, comfort in still being able to see each other via FaceTiming and stuff. Um, and yeah, let's see if, if, if Zoom bombing as a word will stick around um, um, next year. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about you and your background then. Uh, you, you have studied linguistics, but you are not working in that 
in that field uh what happened and why on earth yeah, yeah um it's 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 uh it's always interesting when i tell people um yeah i studied uh english uh, and american linguistics and literature in innsbruck so in austria and i was sort of set on an academic path i worked as a research assistant as well um, for the linguistics department. And I had quite fun doing it as well. Um, but then the opportunity for me arose to start working in an agency in Munich. Um, and I was sort of put, I was put to make a, cho a choice, right? Choose uh, a career in academics or sort of go out in the open world. And back then I made the decision to sort of explore more the professional side of marketing. I also studied a business, so it's not a so far-fetched that I went into marketing, uh, but I was sort of more set on an academic path. And then I, I made the active decision to sort of move to Munich and leave my academic career behind me. But it sort of never let me go, which is, I guess, no, it's not weird. It's just, I now consider language and linguistics more of a hobby. Um, I. I still read some research from time to time that I find interesting, um, and but it's more of a cultural thing to me now. So I don't view language as my work, uh, but more of my hobby. And whenever something like emojis or something that sort of uh, flicks my interest, I sort of deep dive into it. And then I'm also not not one to shy away from sort of speaking about it. And uh, Creative Morning Munich was uh, uh, was good enough to have me. Um, and I had a couple of other speaking opportunities as well. And what I've learned is sort of if we talk about um, language sort of in a non-educational way, sort of make, finding new pathways to get people to think about language differently, um, that sort of brings me the most joys out of my talks. Um, because I know that sort of was the, the main thing that I loved at university, just, you know, step aside and rethink some of the things we've learned. Um, and I get to share that now with people, which I, which I love. Uh, let's talk about your work a bit. So what would you say is the biggest challenge in your working life right now? Well, I actually am on, uh, looking for a new job at the moment. So I stopped working in June, um, not, due, not due to coronavirus, is more an active decision from my side. Um, but yeah, I, I think for me, the most, I, I worked a lot in content and for me, that's, that's still the most interesting thing because things are changing so fast. And I think, especially also now considering like the whole Black Lives Matter movement, you know, there's always a fine line between, do I want my content to be solely data driven, um, and sort of our data inher inherently, um, bias towards one race or another, right? Um, I think uh, if we look at um, Condé Nast Entertainment Bon Appetit, if that tells anyone anything, sort of we see that only data-driven um, content does not always work because it's sort of skewed more towards white race and sort of, uh, of course, white content um, is perceived better because there's a larger audience for that and blah, blah, blah. But I think now sort of brands have to step back and say, okay, do we go against data-driven um, what data tells us to do and sort of go more into a moral direction and a moral responsibility and say no we do have a, a responsibility as, as a brand to show diversity and to sort of uh, show equality and sort of make an active stance towards that um, and i think that's an interesting development and I'm, I'm curious to see how brands handle this and um hopefully we'll, we'll take the step in, into the right direction 
but I think yeah, in general, sort of yeah, uh, content um, in this sense will be the for content, especially this will be the most challenge. Um, sort of rethinking as well how biased are algorithms. You know, um, sort of just challenging the data that we have uh, and not take it for granted. To give some some meaning in a way. Yeah, not lose the human aspect of it. You know, we um, of course data is great uh, and all, and it tells it and it uh, tells it things that we couldn't comprehend from having so many data touch points. But at the same time, it is our responsibility to sort of not take data as sort of the this this holy grail um, of answers, uh, but do step aside and rethink um, actively um, is this the right content for me to, to produce um, and am I willing to maybe lose a couple of views um, in order to produce something more meaningful um, so I think that's sort of the line that brands have to figure out now that is really all about revenue ads revenue and um, views and clicks or is there more to it as well from a brand side not only from like personal instagrams but do, do i as a brand really have the means and the guts to speak up against issues and sort of produce content that that um drives diversity drives uh anti-racism uh, proactively rather than reactively how could uh, people get in touch with you if they have want to continue with this one i'll find otherwise interesting linkedin probably the best uh, source i'm not myself super active on linkedin but if you drop me a line i'm always up for great conversations um alexander eiter so my full name although uh, please call me alex uh, alexander is sort of reserved for my mother um, um so linkedin if you're interested in my personal life um my instagram is um, at alex.eit so e-i-t Um, yeah, I'm always uh, happy to have conversations. I had had great conversations on LinkedIn just to exchange or to follow up on something that I've said, uh, or uh, maybe I made a mistake in, in some of my assumptions. Um, so if you challenge me as well, um, I'm happy to have discussions. Um, or if you're curious about something, or if you wanted me to Uh, talk about something uh, in my next talk. Um, we we shortly talked about sort of um, language and thought and how does language affect my thinking. Um, so if you're interested in that, too, you can also drop me a line um, and I'll I'll think about a platform where I can share some of that. And now it's uh, time for our final question, which is, what does creativity mean to you? Yeah, it's a hard one. People always think it's so easy to answer that question. But I mean, for me as well as a, I write poetry um, as well. So for me, it's always the freedom sort of to express myself. Um, and with creativity, I think it's no, uh, there's no difference. Um, so as long, I think, as you give a piece of yourself into whatever you're creating, um, that's sort of the ultimate goal for me. Um, and You don't have to get everyone on board with whatever you're putting out there in the world uh, because you cannot please anyone. Uh, but that's sort of also the the underlying pain of creativity, right? Um, you sort of put your, so much of yourself into something and then it might not be perceived as, as you perceive it. Um, but I think as long as you put sort of something emotional or some bit of yourself into your 
the work that you create um, that makes that alone makes it meaningful and whether or not people take something positive negative for, uh, from it is is beyond your own control um, but yeah so the freedom to express myself i would say to that answer our thanks to alex and everyone at the creative mornings munich team this episode was produced and edited by me mark lindgren at huima production our music was made by sasha ende the additional sound was made by winnie the mook You have been listening to The Pretzel, the Creative Mornings Munich podcast. Send us feedback by email to feedback at thepretzelpodcast.com. To find the show notes for this episode or to get new episodes right to your phone and your ears, visit thepretzelpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.